All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. The title to our message this morning is The Third Plague, The Finger of God. As you're turning there, please remember the great promise that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. God, our fleshly ears cannot help us to hear the true spiritual message in today's Scripture. We need your spirit. Help us to see where we truly are, sitting before your throne, with you addressing your people, because of our great mediator Christ. So Lord, open up our ears, open up our eyes, cause our hearts to see as we just sang, these truths that will echo for all eternity. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So if you are just now joining us, we are in the middle of the most action part of the book of Exodus, the 10 plagues. Recall that Moses was an instrument in God's hand. God commanded Pharaoh through Moses to let his people go, and thus far he has refused. And so God has unleashed the first plague, the river of blood, and then the second plague, the millions of frogs. And these aren't just neat tricks. Uh, These are demonstrations of God executing judgment against the gods of Egypt. That he is demonstrating that he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and that there is none beside him, none above him in all the earth. And I would just say that we see the relevance of the Bible Uh, in this plague and in the other ones, because this is precisely what God does in our own day. Both in our personal lives and in our corporate lives, every time humanity turns to some other savior, to some other security, to some other God, that hope is turned into a plague. It's the God of Israel, it's the God of the cross who alone can save us. 
So this morning we're going to look at the third plague, and uh, Bridget did a wonderful job, but my outline is going to be different than the one that is in the bulletin. Um, so instead of doctrine and duty and delight, here are my three points. First point is the covenant judgment on Egypt. The covenant judgment on Egypt. Second point, the limited power of Satan. The limited power of Satan. And thirdly, the finger of God in Christ. I'm not going to have one single big idea, but a principle that attaches to each point. So let's look first of all at the covenant judgment on Egypt. Now notice how this plague begins in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now something is missing that was included in the first two plagues. What's missing? Well, in the first two plagues, God first threatened Pharaoh. He first warned Pharaoh what was coming. But here, there's no threat. There's no warning. There's just an immediate and terrible judgment. And this pattern is seen in the rest of the plagues as well. In plagues four and five, there's a warning. Pharaoh doesn't listen. And then in plague six, no warning. In plague seven and eight, there's a warning. Pharaoh doesn't listen. And then in plague nine, no warning. What do we learn from this pattern? Well, on the one hand, we learn that God is an infinitely patient and kind God. He he strives with sinful man. He warns him of judgment again and again and again. In fact, in Scripture, we see that God is depicted as a God who is reluctant to judge. He's reluctant to pour out condemnation. In fact, in Isaiah 28, 21, it says that judgment is his strange work. It's his alien work. He doesn't delight. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But we learn from this that God does not warn and threaten forever. There's coming a day when all wicked men will cease to hear the the warnings and the threatenings from God and they'll come to a terrible and sudden judgment. Ahab and Jezebel were warned in Scripture again and again and again and then suddenly they were swept away in judgment. Ahab was shot in battle and, and died. Jezebel was thrown out a window and eaten by dogs. The thought of every person in hell, as Jonathan Edwards was keen to say, is, I thought I had more time. In this life, God is tenderly warning those who are not reconciled to him. Again and again, he he says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? But in eternity, God shuts the door. There's no more threatenings, there's no more warnings, there's just a fiery judgment. And, and everyone in that place will think to themselves, I thought I had more time. So right away, this is, a, this is a warning to those who are not reconciled to God, that there's coming a time when all warnings will cease. Now Moses and Aaron, they obeyed the Lord. Look at verse 17. 
And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. This is interesting because in all of these plagues, even the beasts suffered. Fish died in the first plague. Here in in the second plague, the frogs died, gathered up in heaps. Here... Um, in the fifth and seventh plague, the livestock die. Children, boys and girls, imagine you were a little Egyptian child and you had a pet dog or a pet cat and you see these judgments coming out on the land of Egypt and, and you look at your pet and you say, why is my pet dying? My pet didn't sin against God. But more than that, more than just the beasts that were suffering in the land, there were lots of regular Egyptians who also suffered from these plagues. One author notes this, quote, Egyptians who were far removed from the seat of power were afflicted with insects, pestilence, boils, and hail. They knew nothing of the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, yet their crops were destroyed, their waters were turned into blood, their land filled with the stench of death. Those Egyptians who never personally owned, controlled, or punished a Hebrew slave were scratching day and night from the biting gnats. What had they done to deserve this? End quote. But it also seems to me that the Hebrews themselves were suffering, in these, at least in these first three plagues. It's not until the fourth plague where we see that God makes a distinction between Egypt and the land of Goshen. So to sum up, animals were, were suffering, innocent Egyptians were suffering, and Hebrew slaves were suffering. What do we do with this? This is such an important question because I think that many of us approach the Bible in an entirely individualistic way. So we arrive at our first principle. Men, and all of creation itself, men suffer not only for their own sins, but for the sins of their covenant heads. Men suffer not only for their own sins, but for the sins of their covenant heads. Consider three demonstrations of this. First of all, think of the covenant of works. In Genesis 2, Adam was the federal head or the covenant head of the entire human race. And when he disobeyed by eating the forbidden fruit, every human being after him suffered. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, one trespass Adams led to the condemnation for all men. We're in the mess that we're in today because our federal head Adam sinned, and this affected even the animals. Romans 8 uh, 32 says that the whole creation is groaning in childbirth. Secondly, that consider the covenant of that exists in nations. The covenant that exists in nations. Citizens in ancient Egypt or ancient Rome or America today prosper 
or suffer, as one author says, not only by what they do as individuals, but also by the decisions of those who are in authority over them. Think about King Zedekiah right before the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel 17 makes it clear that when he broke his covenant with King Nebuchadnezzar, he broke his covenant with God. And it wasn't just Zedekiah who suffered for this breach. Ezekiel 17, 21 says that his troops shall fall by the sword and all the survivors, the Judean citizens, would be scattered to every wind. So innocent Judean citizens like Jeremiah the prophet suffered because of Zedekiah's treachery. Or think of the covenant, thirdly, the covenant that we have in families. King Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he made horrible decisions as the, the, the federal head, the covenant head of his home, and his family suffered for it. If, if you're not familiar with the story, he joined his son to the, son, to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and in doing so, he He joined together Baal worship and Jehovah worship. And after Jehoshaphat died, his daughter-in-law, his wicked daughter-in-law, daughter of Jezebel, uh, murdered all of the king's sons and all of the king's grandsons except for one. So Jehoshaphat's innocent children suffered because of his decisions. So Pharaoh, being the federal head of Egypt, affected all of the people in Egypt. Now, it's true that, that both the Egyptians as a whole and the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew slaves were guilty as individuals before the Lord. They all were guilty of worshiping um, Egyptians, Egyptian gods. But they were also being judged because, of, because Pharaoh represented them. All societies, whether they're families or churches or states, they prosper or suffer as a result of those who represent them. So, dear, dear, dear congregation, we, first of all, just have to understand this principle. As I said, in, in the West, we've been influenced by a, a radical individualism. We think in individual units, individual rights, individual liberties, individual consequences. And, of course, it's true, ultimately, that every individual will stand um, before God and be personally accountable to Him. That's 100% true. In history, however, God has designed corporate covenants such that we will suffer or prosper not only according to our individual actions, but also according to the actions of those who are in authority over us. So how do we apply this? How do we respond to this? We pray for those who are in authority. Just as we saw Moses pray Last week for, for Pharaoh, we, we also ought to pray, and now we have an additional motive. Last week, we saw that Jesus alone has the power to clean the land, but we have an additional motive now. We, we pray knowing that our future prosperity or suffering and that of our children's and our grandchildren's and our great-grandchildren's prosperity and suffering rests on the ruler's decisions and their actions. So, shake yourself free of thinking only in individual categories. Ask yourself, 
do you give yourself to prayer for more than just yourself and your immediate circumstances? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, first of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified life in every way. Don't you see that the pharaohs of today, they desperately need our prayers. This is a Christian duty, and we have skin in the game. Don't don't we believe that God can change their hearts? Don't we believe that God is glorified or despised based on our, our, our ruler's actions? Don't we believe that our fellow citizens will prosper or suffer according to those decisions? So I, I would encourage you, be, be very intentional about your, your prayer life. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Pray for your church. Pray for your nation. Pray for those covenant heads, for fathers, for pastors, for politicians, that the Lord would turn their hearts to, to Him. Maybe a second application here that consider that if you're a covenant head, if you're a father, if you're a pastor, if you're a, a politician, examine yourself. Do you know that your actions and your decisions affect everyone that you're responsible for? Are you following the Lord? Will your children rise up and call you blessed after you? Or will they suffer? So that's our first point, that Men suffer not only for their own individual sins, but for the sins of their covenant leaders. So let's look then at our second point, which is the limited power of Satan. Now this particular plague of the gnats would have been um, terrible. It would have been absolutely awful. Halfway through verse 17, Aaron struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast and all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. There are uh, many biblical associations with that phrase, the dust of the earth. One association is that this is what God promised Abraham, that his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Genesis 3.16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So the idea here is that these gnats were an innumerable multitude. If you could count the dust on the ground, then you could count the gnats. One, uh, other, other translations uh, render this word not gnats, but lice or mosquitoes. Uh, no doubt they were biting bugs. Perhaps it was that bug that we affectionately call a noceum, uh, a biting midge. 
the females need blood to develop their eggs, so they will drink from they will drink blood from any nearby human or animal. They were flying in innumerable swarms, so you wouldn't just get bit once at a time, but countless bites, nonstop, all the time. I mean, at least with the frogs, as they were climbing up on you, you could shoo them away and knock the frogs off. But these biting bugs are smaller than the point of a, of a pen. They'd fly up your nose, into your ears, into your eyes. There was no relief anywhere. My family was camping one time. Maybe this is why some of my family members don't like to camp anymore. <laughs> we were cooking food and eating at the picnic tables and we were infested by swarms of hornets. And nobody actually ever got stung, but they were landing on our plate, into our cups, on our hands, in our faces. It was, it was so intense that we actually went into our car to eat. We could at least escape those hornets. But there was no escape from these gnats. They can go anywhere that you can go. They can go through your clothes. And this was especially humiliating for Pharaoh because Pharaoh was believed to be the divine and, and human link between the people of Egypt and their gods. Geb was the earth god, G-E-B. Pharaoh was believed to be the heir of Geb. Here's an excerpt from the Book of the Dead. The Pharaoh says, I am decreed to be the heir the Lord of the earth, of Geb. Geb has refreshed me and he has caused me to ascend his throne, end quote. That's what the Egyptians believed about Pharaoh. He was heir of the earth god Geb and therefore they believed that it was Pharaoh's responsibility to control the climate, to regulate the seasons, to preserve order in the world. Geb, the Lord of the earth, and Pharaoh, his Air was supposed to keep the soil in Egypt fertile and fruitful, but God goes like this, and all of that soil turns to biting, harassing gnats. And this made Pharaoh look impotent and ridiculous. His magicians that were an extension of his so-called divinity, were then summoned. Look at verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now, we've already seen how these magicians were operating by the power and activity of Satan. That word, secret arts, is the same word that the cherubim used in Genesis 3 as that flaming sword to keep man out of the garden. This was a demonic, occultic activity. And thus far in the story, these magicians, by their demonic power, were able to produce the first three miracles, the, the staff into the serpent, the water into blood, and they could make frogs come up on the land. But here, they could not duplicate 
the power of God in this instance. And so we come upon our second principle this morning. Though Satan's power be great, his power is limited. Though Satan's power be great, it is a limited power. Remember that this battle in the book of Exodus is not just a battle between Egypt and Israel. It's not just a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. It's a battle between Satan and God. In fact, that's the main battle that's going on. And we discover here in this particular plague that although Satan's power is great, it is a limited power. Consider how on on the one hand, Satan's power is exceedingly great. Satan is called a strong man, Matthew 12, 29, a fully armed man, Luke 11, 21. He is the lion that roars seeking to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is that ancient serpent, the dragon that does war against the angels, Revelation 17, 7, and war against the saints, Revelation 17, 17. He can make men mute and not be able to speak. Luke eleven fourteen. He can inflict terrible diseases upon humans. Luke thirteen sixteen. Or think of Job. He can possess animals. Matthew chapter three or eight verse thirty two. He can possess human beings. John chapter thirteen verse twenty seven, driving them to madness and insanity. Matthew eight twenty eight, making them unfit for human society. Think of the the man who was in the tombs. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. He has a great power. But on the other hand, what we see here is that Satan's power is limited, it's derivative, it's confined, it's under the sovereign hand of Almighty Jehovah. Uh, Just consider, when, when Satan wanted to touch Job in the book of Job, he needed permission to do so. Job 1.12, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. The, the demons need, possess, uh, need permission to even enter into pigs. The most unclean animal, they don't have permission to enter. They, they can't just enter into pigs. They need permission from God. Matthew 8.31, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into those herd of pigs. Whether willing or unwilling, they have to offer themselves at the, at the service of his orders. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 22, 22, there was a discussion in heaven about who was going to deceive Ahab. And a lying spirit came forward and the Lord said, okay, you can entice him, go, you will succeed. He offered himself. Whenever Jesus commands demons, they always have to obey immediately without question. Matthew 1, 
or Mark 1, 25 and 26, but Jesus rebuked the demon saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And ultimately every demon and Satan himself will bow the knee to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You see what a comfort this is? You see what a comfort this is? You see what a comfort this is that these magicians, these sorcerers, these demonic agents weren't able to to go past the bounds that God had set forth. Consider three comforts from these unspeakable truths, loved ones. Comfort number one, no matter how powerful or cruel Satan is, he is under the careful control of God Almighty. No matter how powerful or cruel Satan is, he is under the careful control of God Almighty. Dear congregation, if Satan, that awful roaring lion, was let off of his chain, he would devour us. We would be swallowed up in despair. We'd be brought into the blackest darkness. Think how terrifying. Imagine in your mind's eye how terrifying it would be to just meet the devil in a dark alley. But how much more terrible would it be if he could have his way with you, if he didn't need permission at any time to to bring you under his schemes. You'd be utterly destroyed. You'd be ruined. You'd be made eternally miserable. But God in his great mercy, apart from merit, apart from what we actually deserve, he has put a chain around that dragon and he cannot touch you without permission. The prophet says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Comfort number two. Though Satan be such a dangerous enemy to us, he is also an enemy of God. Though Satan be such a dangerous enemy to us, he's also the enemy of God. Satan is not merely your enemy. He is God's enemy, and God hates him. Um, defeating Satan was one of the main reasons that Jesus Christ came into the world. 1 John 3, 8, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, you have nothing to fear from Satan Ever, ever, if God is for you, who can be against you? Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have nothing to fear for God is with you. Comfort number three. This is perhaps the most delightful one, that God will cause every demonic attack to ultimately work for your good and his redemptive purposes. God will cause every demonic attack to work for your good and his redemptive purposes. 
We, we need to have a better demonology. You know that the, what's the worst that Satan can do to you? The worst that Satan can do to you is sanctify you. That's the worst he can do. Uh, Satan's attack, think, think about Job. Satan's attack on Job, what did it ultimately result in? Ultimately. It ultimately resulted in the longest dialogue in Scripture between God and man. Chapters 38 through 41 in the book of Job, and it's glory after glory. God is telling Job all the mysteries of creation and all the mysteries of providence and the mysteries of redemption. And Job, at the end of that, before he even gets his uh, uh, family back, before he gets his prosperity back, Job says, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Satan meant evil for Job, but in the end, it became Job's greatest service. His cruelty turned into bringing him face to face with the living God. He sanctified him, and Satan furthered the redemptive purposes of God by giving us a most beloved book in Scripture, the book of Job. Don't you see? That's all that Satan can do in your life. In fact, that's all that was happening here in the book of Exodus. These satanic sorcerers, though it wasn't their plan, what were they doing? They were furthering the glory of God. Every sorcery that they committed up to this moment manifested the inestimable worth of God, the inestimable power of God, and the inscrutable wisdom of God. The Exodus was only secondarily, secondarily about rescuing Israel. The Exodus is primarily about displaying the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, that's the food of your souls. Your salvation is secondary. Yes, it's, it's necessary for you to taste and see the glory of God. But once you are saved, then it's an everlasting feast. That's what Exodus is about. That all peoples would know that there is not a power in heaven or in earth that is equal to his. So that's our second point, that Satan's power is limited by the unlimited, unsurpassed, infinite, and unknowable power of the God of heaven. So let's look thirdly then. Our final point, the finger of God in Christ. The finger of God in Christ. I hope what you're seeing through this book is that there is an amazing correspondence between the first Exodus in the Old Testament and the true and better Exodus in the New. In the first Exodus, Moses led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. In the second Exodus, Jesus led all of his people out of the bondage from Satan. In the first exodus, Moses' first plague was turning the water into blood. In the second exodus, Jesus' first miracle was turning the water into wine. In the first exodus, Moses unleashed frogs, a type of... Uh, representing unclean spirits onto the land. In the second exodus, Jesus 
removed and dispossessed unclean spirits from all of his people. In the first exodus, right here, these magicians were forced to say, this is the finger of God. And in the second exodus, Jesus claimed to be the finger of God. Look at verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The magicians could not cause the dust of the earth to become gnats. And when they failed, they confessed, perhaps unwillingly with their mouths, that this was the finger of God. And what's fascinating here is that there's another association with that phrase, the dust of the earth. We saw that that phrase was associated with an innumerable number. But the dust of the earth has another association. I hope you can think of it as we're thinking about the book of Genesis even. A.W. Pink explains, quote, In the judgment after the fall, when God pronounced upon Adam, we read that he said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, Genesis 3.17. And again, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return, Genesis 3.19. When Aaron smote the ground and its dust became gnats, the gnats came upon the Egyptian. This was a graphic showing forth of the awful act that man by nature is under the curse of a holy God. Concerning this plague, we read that the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Thus it is with Satan himself. His bounds are definitely prescribed by the Almighty, and beyond them he cannot go. Death he can inflict by God's permission, and uncleanness he can bring forth freely, as the magician showed in the first two plagues. But... With the curse, which the dust becoming gnat so plainly speaks of, he is not allowed to tamper with, end quote. In other words, this plague demonstrates that Satan has no power over the curse. He has no power over it. That brings us then to our, our third principle this morning, that Jesus Christ alone is the finger of God that conquers the curse. Jesus Christ alone is the finger of God that conquers the curse. Turn with me to Luke eleven fourteen to see Jesus use this exact language. See, Jesus doesn't merely quote Moses. He claims to be the very thing that these magicians are calling out. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said... He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. 
while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus Christ is the finger of God that these magicians unknowingly were pointing to. Their satanic powers could not overcome him just as no satanic power could overcome Christ when he put on flesh and came to rescue us. The magicians had no power over the curse, but Jesus Christ, loved ones, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's the only one in the universe who has the power over the curse. Comfort yourselves with that truth, O oh dear child of God. Jesus Christ is not some weak magician. He's not a trickster. He doesn't use sleight of hand. He's not some religious figurehead among many. He's the finger of God, as we read in our call to worship this morning, that created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 8.3, the heavens are the work of your fingers. Jesus is the finger of God who gave us God's perfect law of liberty. We're going to see this in Exodus 31, 18, that the two tablets of the testimony were written by the finger of God. And he is the finger of God who is the king who overcame the curse as we just read in our passage. But if it is the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Loved ones, that's your savior, creator, lawgiver, redeemer. He plundered the house of Satan. He plundered the house of the strong man for you. And though, and though Satan may be stronger than you and I, he's not stronger than our Savior. He openly triumphed over him on the cross. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him on the cross. You and I might be exceedingly foolish, and Satan might be exceedingly cunning, but he is not more wise than our Savior who is called Wonderful Counselor. He's the very wisdom of God. He is the very Logos who put on flesh. Satan may be the, the God of this rebellious world order, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, but 1 John 4.4 4 promises that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan may be that roaring lion seeking to devour you, but Jesus is the true and better Samson who ripped apart that lion with his own bare hands. Don't you see? He is the finger of God. He accomplishes all. He triumphs over all. He defeats all. And that was the confession that was forced out of these 
magicians. Is that your confession today? If you're a downhearted saint, if you're a discouraged saint, if you're a backsliding saint, renew this confession today that my Savior is the finger of God, that he can defeat the great dragon, that he has crushed the serpent's head, that Satan has nothing on me, that the worst he can do to me is sanctify me. Renew that confession today. But if that's not your confession, don't be like Pharaoh who hardened his heart. Because you're going to make that confession someday. Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Pharaoh will be forced to make that confession on the last day, and then he'll be thrown everlastingly into condemnation. You don't have to be like Pharaoh. You can confess Jesus Christ today and the mighty finger of God will come upon you and all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your sin and all of your condemnation will be washed away. That's the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you have not called upon the name of the Lord, call upon him today. Receive him. Believe upon his name because the promise is, is that all who have received him, all who have believed in his name, have the right to be called the children of God. You can leave here today being a child of God. So trust him, hope in him. And dear saint, as you leave here today, look at the dirt. You still worship the God who can take dirt and turn it into gnats. He has power over the curse. The curse does not have power over you. Let's pray. Oh God, as marvelous as it would have been to see these plagues, as jaw-dropping as it would have been, Lord, this is a room full of miracles, of greater miracles, of men and women and children that you have caused to be alive by the new birth of men and women that you have transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your only beloved Son, of men and women who will never die but will live countless ages in the presence of you and your Son and your Spirit where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Yes, Lord, there is greater miracles in this room than all the plagues in Egypt that you have taken us and you have included us in your family, that you have united us to your Son, the very finger of God. So we rejoice this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for life and life everlasting. Help us to sing with all of our hearts and with all of our souls and with all of our strength now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.